Our reading this morning from the New Testament is taken from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 1 through 14, although I have to confess the sermon will be basically verse 1 through 7, but our reading will go through verse 14. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies his spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham, quote, believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, quote, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many are, are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, quote, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For, quote, the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but, quote, the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, quote, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. As we enter into the third chapter of Galatians, we enter into the book's heart. Paul has been moving us here, and here we have its central message. What do we find here? Well, in the first half of what I read, I find eight very significant things that we should note concerning what Paul is saying. The first one is Paul emphasizes that the Galatian churches were founded on a very specific message, a very specific doctrine. And that doctrine is the message of Christ and him crucified. In verse 1, when Paul said, uh, in verse, yeah, 1, where Paul says, it was clearly portrayed among you that Christ was crucified, uh, the, the the Greek verb tense of, crucific, of crucified there is the perfect tense. It means that something has happened in the past, and that event, that thing that happened in the past, has made a world of difference, and the world is now different. 
So when Paul says, you saw Jesus Christ as crucified, it was put before your eyes that way, and he puts it in the perfect tense, he's saying, we presented to you, first of all, and of most importance, that of everything that has ever happened in the world, the most important thing is that Jesus the Christ has been crucified. He is reminding them of the earliest teachings and the pains that the apostles took to ground them and root them in the fact that there had been a substitution made for them. Jesus the Christ had received the punishment and wrath of God that they would not be under that, that they would not receive that. Paul says, before your eyes, we had shown you time and time again, we had painted a visible, vigorous picture of the message of Jesus Christ crucified to you. We rooted you in it. This was our basic beginning teaching. And just like seeds planted in soil, the soil we planted you in was substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ pays for your sins. His crucifixion has changed history. His crucifixion has been the change that makes everything else happen. This is what we absolutely emphasized to you. Now, some interpreters have attempted to use Paul's words here that before the eyes of the Galatians, Jesus was portrayed as crucified as an argument for using art to make religious messages. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not how he is using his language. He is using a very picturesque way of speaking, saying, uh, well, let me ask you, have you ever looked at somebody and said, look, do I have to paint you a picture? Well, we're using the same kind of language that Paul here is using. He is saying the most basic thing we taught you and taught you again and again and again, so that honestly, it was like painting you a picture, is that Jesus Christ was crucified. He's not saying anything about using art for worship. He's not saying anything about iconography. He's saying, look, we laid it out as clear as if we had painted you a, a painting for the Louvre, Jesus Christ has been crucified, and this is of the central and most basic import. Elsewhere, when Paul talks about uh, the apostolic approach to preaching the gospel, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he describes their message this way. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And there, again, in the Greek, the, the tense is the perfect tense. I resolved to know nothing but that Jesus Christ has been crucified, and that has changed everything and had major impact. And I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not persuasive with words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit 
and of power, that your faith should be not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, Paul is not saying that there aren't many and great truths in the Christian religion that are of great import. But what Paul is saying is that all of them find their rootage in Jesus the Christ and him crucified. Every other doctrine of the Christian religion, every practice of the Christian religion, everything having to do with your relation to God is rooted in Jesus the Christ and him crucified. He has been crucified for you. You deserve the wrath of God. You are a sinner. You are not a prize. God has presented his own son to receive your punishment. He has been crucified and you have been spared. And every, every, every other doctrine is rooted in that truth. And when the apostles would come and they would preach the gospel and they would establish a church, this is what they preached over and over and over again. This was the foundation. This was the basic. And Paul is reminding them, this is what you have been grounded in. Secondly, though, having seen that that was the beginning and they had been rightly planted, we see that well-founded churches drifted from that message anyway. Paul begins the chapter with an uh, amazing statement of his frustration. Oh, foolish Galatians. That's not a compliment. Paul looks at them and says, we have told you of the grace of God in Christ, how he has loved you and he has provided a substitution. Oh, foolish Galatians. And there are about three words in Greek that get translate foolishness. And this one doesn't really have a lot to do with morality per se, but it says you're an empty-headed idiot. Oh, you absolutely empty-headed idiots. Who has bewitched you? Again and again and again, we put before you Jesus the Christ and him crucified. We grounded you in this message. We baptized you in this message. This was the beginning. This was the soil. How can you possibly be straying from that? It is as if somebody has cast a spell upon you. It is as if you have no intelligence at all. It is as if you are utter morons. I realize that's the Living Bible version, but it actually is in the text. How can this be happening, Paul says? Well, it's happening because of fallen human nature. This week, uh, somebody who listened to our sermon from last week uh, sent me an email saying, effectively, I don't remember his exact words, but it was, how is it that totally depraved people could be saved? Well, my answer back to him was, uh, it's because there are no other type of people. Human beings are sinful. Human beings are flawed. 
the very best human being in the eyes of God is a ravenous monster. The, the kindest human being is broken in sin. Uh, an hour of life in human nature is good enough to damn you 10,000 times over. There are only totally depraved people. That's who's going to be saved because there are no other. And even saved people in the flesh maintain a huge amount of spiritual weakness, confusion, and sin. And so why is it that a church that has been founded on the grace of God so well, not only a church, but a multiplicity of churches that have been founded on the grace of God so well, how is it they can be walking away from that? It's because human flesh does that. The message of the grace of God is the basic message. It is the beginning message, and everything is rooted in that. But human flesh hates that message and wants to walk away from that message. And to the degree that you are still sinful, it's the degree you want to still walk away from that message. Because the message that God is gracious and he has substituted for you his son offends the flesh. I have a dear friend and mentor who uh, roughly 30 years ago I had gone out to lunch with. And he is a, he's a strange man. Um, he does not claim the Bible to be inerrant, and yet he preaches as though that is the case. In fact, he is one of the best expositors of Scripture that I have ever known. He claims to be an Arminian, and yet his every message is Calvinistic. So uh, you figure that out. I never have been able to. But we were at lunch, and he looked me in the eye and said, you know, Russ, you're a Reformed minister. You're going to go and preach that God is gracious, that God looks at men who are sinners and can never achieve earning his love and faith. And you're going to tell them that God chooses to be gracious to them, that God chooses to be gracious, that he says, I will redeem fallen men. They will never be able to earn my love, but I will substitute for them. You're going to look men in, in the face and tell them that, and you're going to expect them to respond with happiness and gratitude. And I will assure you that won't happen. They are going to hear the message of the grace of God, and it is going to convulse them. They are going to be angry. And they are going to reject you because human flesh wants to hear nothing less than God is gracious. Human flesh wants to say, now, okay, I may be a sinner, but one of these days I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. One of these days I'm going to get it together and I'm going to be able to be a good person and God will accept me. And human flesh is offended by the fact that God must be gracious. And really, that's what's happened in the churches of Galatia. 
there have been people come in and bewitch them. Uh, they have appealed to their flesh. They have said, what you really need is to try to be a better person, to follow the law of God, to, to live according to your strength and become agreeable to God. And the people of the church have said, absolutely. I will earn the grace of God because I can do that. And Paul says, if you attempt to do that, you are an empty-headed mark. And what has happened to you? Grace is what you absolutely need, but the flesh will walk away from grace at any opportunity it can. Thirdly, Paul makes some amazing statements just off the cuff that he doesn't defend, he assumes, and his hearers will nod their heads and say, okay, yes, that is true. Specifically, Paul says, now, you know that the Holy Spirit is among you and that God does miracles among you. That's just a given fact. Do you think that he does that because you obey the law or because you have heard the faith? What we see here is Paul saying the presence of the Holy Spirit and the working of miracles are naturally found where God's grace and substitution are preached. That's where God's Holy Spirit chooses to be, in an environment where the believers in Jesus Christ have grabbed hold of the grace of God and said, I absolutely need a Savior. I need the grace of God. I need Jesus Christ. I can trust in nothing else. In an environment where that takes place, you will naturally find the presence of the Holy Spirit, and you will naturally find miracles happening. Now, we need to be careful and back up just a little bit and make sure we don't shape that in our own image. The presence of the Holy Spirit is not proved by the Holy Spirit doing what you think he ought to do. There are many uh, manifestations of the Christian church that have a definition of the presence of the Holy Spirit that really require him to do what they want him to do. And the Holy Spirit is God himself and God will never ask you now, you know, how do you want me to do things? But the presence of the Spirit can't be denied in the churches of Galatia. He's there, and he's not silent, and he is working miracles among them on a routine basis. Again, God himself chooses the miracles he will do, you don't get to look at God and say, like the Pharisees, now, if I'm going to believe in you, you're going to work a miracle like I define it. Or like the cynics who were beside the Sea of Galilee who said, now, you fed us bread and fish yesterday, and that was really cool, but uh, for us to believe in you, we want you to do it again. Uh, you don't get to do that. But nevertheless, God will choose the miracles he will do. And God does miracles naturally among a believing church. The Spirit is naturally there. And Paul says he's there doing what he's doing 
because the Christian church is defined by the message of substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Conversely, just as his presence is given where that is the doctrine of the church, the lack of the Holy Spirit and the lack of miracles is given when men try to relate to God on the basis of the first covenant. In scripture, there are two ways to relate to God, and all men are doing it. The first one is God says to mankind, do everything I tell you to do, and you will continue to live. I have created you to live. If you obey me in perfection, if you do what I tell you to do, I will continue to give you life, and you will have eternal life, and I will relate to you. This is the first covenant, the covenant of works. It is a covenant of obedience to God's law, and God's law is a good, righteous, and holy thing. And it is possible for you as a human being to relate to God on the basis of this first covenant. And the false teachers have come into the churches of Galatia and have told them, that's what you ought to do. You ought to relate to God by trying to obey everything he tells you. Uh, and if you do that, you will live. And Paul says here, now, if you relate to God in that matter, that, 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 that way, uh, one of the things you can guarantee is that the presence of the Holy Spirit and God working miracles will not be present. And that only makes sense because the first covenant is not dependent on the grace of God. It is not dependent on his love, his care, his mercy. It is dependent on you and you doing the right thing. So if you're going to relate to God in that fashion, why would you expect his Holy Spirit to be present? You are dependent on your flesh. You are dependent upon your action. Paul uses the very term, the flesh, here. So why would God send you the Spirit? Why would he do miracles? You're relating to him on the basis of your strength. The second covenant is the covenant of Christ. It is where God is gracious to you. He is merciful to you. He has sent Jesus Christ to pay for your sins. Faith is given to you to attach you to Jesus Christ. It is utterly dependent on God and not on you. In that environment, you would expect the Spirit to be present. In that environment, you would expect miracles to be taking place because everything's dependent on God. But if it's all dependent on you, good luck. The Spirit doesn't dwell in that kind of environment. Faith and law are essentially of two absolutely different natures. I told you that we're only really going through verse 7, and that's true, but uh, to really get the gist of what's being said, you do have to kind of jump up to verse 11 and 12, where Paul states this, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for, quote, the just shall live by faith. 
Yet the law is not of faith, but, quote, the man who does them shall live by them. There is a Christian morality. It is taught from cover to cover in the Bible. It looks like the Ten Commandments. Everything God says to morally do is holy, righteous, and good. But there are two ways of apprehending goodness. One is to take the law, a written body of writing, which has come down from heaven, and say, in my strength, I will follow this law. That is of human effort. It is not of faith. Paul has said this. It is not of faith. Faith is where you stop trusting in yourself. You stop being self-centered. You stop uh, seeking to relate to God on your own. And you grab hold of what God has given you. You depend upon him. You trust in him. You say, I have no salvation other than what Jesus Christ has done for me. That is not the law. The law says, I will do. Faith says, I will depend. And Paul is making a sharp contrast here. It's two covenants of God, but the law is not faith, and faith is not the law. And never the two will mix. You have to choose one or the other. If you choose the second covenant... And you say, I will relate to God on the basis of his grace alone, on the basis of Jesus Christ alone. Then one of the things you can take to the bank is that this will not win you any friends in the world, and you will, in fact, be persecuted. Paul is pleading with the churches of Galatia, saying, how can you turn your back on on, on grace and faith? Look at verse 4. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Why is Paul talking about suffering? Well, it's because, like I said, the flesh hates the grace of God. It doesn't want the grace of God for itself. And the flesh hates the grace of God if it sees it in you. Human flesh doesn't want a gracious God. And if it sees it in you, you know what's going to happen? They're going to attack you. Paul, in writing to his uh, protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, writes this to him, beginning in verse 10. You have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, what happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of all of them the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The apostle is simply, effectively, quoting his Lord. 
On the night that our Lord was betrayed in the Gospel of John, beginning at chapter 15, Jesus turned to his disciples who were growing in their faith, growing in their trust of him, and this is what he had to say to them the night before he was crucified. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Now, this was not the only time in this discourse the Lord said this. As we move on in the same discourse, in the same sermon, if you will, going into chapter 16, he says this, These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And then as this discourse comes to an end at the end of chapter 16, verse 32 and 33 read this. Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Why are the false teachers in the churches of Galatia and teaching them, now let us seek God by the law and by our efforts? What's motivating them? Well, partly it is, as I said before, it's the pride of the flesh. The flesh wants to do anything but accept the grace of God. But there is also the issue that uh, the message of the cross, the message of substitution, the message of salvation by faith brings persecution, and the false teachers want to get out of that. They want to have a religion that the world won't hate that the world won't persecute. And then as now, whenever you have false teachers, whenever you have liberalism, whenever you have an attack upon the faith to change it, part of the motivation is we need to have a religion that the world will approve of. You can't have that if you want the approval of God. You cannot have it. If you believe that to be a believer, because you become nice and stuff, because, you know, a Christian is nice, you think that the world is going to give you an attaboy, chuck it. 
the world hates the cross. The world will hate you if you hold on to it. And Paul looks at the Galatians and says, you have suffered so much. Are you now going to turn your back on the suffering you had to go through to embrace something that the world will accept? It will mean your suffering was in vain. It will mean the Holy Spirit will not be among you. It will mean that God is not going to do any miracles among you. Are you sure you want to do that? But make no mistake, Paul warns us just like Christ warns us. Now, I told you before this happened, so you'll remember, if they hated me, they will hate you. Sixthly, you will notice that what Paul is emphasizing to us is that the second covenant is what happens when you have, quote, hearing with faith, end quote. Now think about that. Look at verse 2 and 3. Um, you know, is, is this the works of the law or was this hearing with faith? If you have hearing with faith, which of the two of them have to come first? Hearing or faith? There are many, many people who will hear the gospel of God that will not be converted, that will not receive the love of God, who will in fact go into a Christless eternity, though they heard. It is hearing with faith that the second covenant is built on. If that's the case, then a priori, faith has to exist before hearing. Much of the Christian church uh, reverses the order. You hear, and you think about the message, and you think, okay, well, that made sense. I think I'll have faith, and faith grows out of hearing. But that's not actually what's happening. What's happening is when you are converted, God is giving you faith, and you have to have the faith to do the hearing. And Paul is reminding them of the a priori work of God in them. The false teachers come and say, relate to God on the basis of your own strength. Paul is subtly reminding them, faith has been given to you by God. Uh, it wasn't of you to begin with, and it won't be of you now. God gave faith. That's how you heard. That point is so incredibly important that it caused a mistranslation in the Geneva Bible. In verse 2 and in verse 5 in the Geneva Bible, this is how it reads. This only would I learn of you, Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith preached? Again, going to verse 5. He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it through the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith preached? The word preached is not in the original Greek text. And if you look at 
the King James Version, which is ostensibly practically an upgrade of the Geneva. Uh, it was technically supposed to be an upgrade of the Bishop's Bible, but honestly, it was an upgrade of this. In the King James, the word preached isn't present. So why do we find it here? Well, it's because the Protestants of Geneva were so impassioned to make you know that religion was a matter of the gospel, not the sacraments, that they wanted to emphasize preaching. And so they added the word preached, and it makes the sentence say, now they come, they preach to you faith, that's how God works. It's not through the priest giving you communion. It's not through uh, the priest baptizing you. It's not through you making confession. It is through the preaching of the word of God. Well, the original doesn't really emphasize the word preach, but it is present in the context because, quite frankly, that is how God does his work. If you're going to hear with faith, someone is going to have to preach to you. As Paul will say when he writes to the Romans in chapter 10, um, well, I shall read it to you, beginning in verse 12 through 15, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him, for, quote, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. You can't hear with faith if no one is talking. And in the 16th century, religion was being presented to the people as I, the religious leader, have the ability to give you God's grace. I don't. Not a bit. I can preach to you the word of God, and God works in your heart through preaching so that you have faith and you believe. And the Protestants were really emphasizing that, but the original text emphasizes the gift of faith. It comes through preaching. They're not wrong, but it's not exactly the right translation. Lastly, as we move into the second part of this section, Paul wants you to know that the concept of salvation by grace, faith, and substitution is not, capital N-O-T, is not a New Testament thing. He puts Abraham before us as our model, and he quotes the very first book of the Hebrew Bible, and the 15th chapter of that very long book, verse 6, and says, now Abraham was justified, was put in a right relationship with God by faith, and that is what we are preaching to you here. Because the Bible is divided linguistically into the Old Testament and the New Testament, a lot of people have identified those testaments as the covenants. 
and that is not the truth. When Paul writes to the Romans again, and this time going to chapter 4, Paul writes to Christians, and he says, now, what you have is exactly the same thing as a couple other guys had. You may have heard of them, Abraham and David. Beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? Now, the word found, again, is perfect tense. Something's happened to Abraham. It's changed him forever. What has he found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. He had faith in God. Belief is the verb of faith. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man, David describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. The Hebrew scriptures may be called the Old Testament, and the new Greek scriptures may be called the New Testament. But the first covenant begins in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and the second covenant, the covenant of grace, the covenant of Jesus Christ, doesn't begin at Matthew 1.1, it begins in Genesis 3 and verse 15. God has always related to man from the very Garden of Eden in one of two ways. You can stand before God and you can try to be a really good person and earn his love, and you can go straight to hell and never succeed, or you can stand before God and say, I absolutely need Jesus Christ to pay for my sins, to sanctify me, to cleanse me with his blood. I claim nothing else but Jesus Christ alone, and you can come into God's favor and be loved by him and have the spirit among you and have him do miracles among you and be utterly changed. But these are the only two ways that mankind has ever related to God. And Paul takes us back to Abraham, takes us back to Genesis, takes us back to David and the Psalms, and says, this is new covenant faith. This is religion in Jesus Christ. And it is. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you would turn your back on what God has been doing from the very beginning of time in Jesus Christ? Oh, foolish Galatians, why would you depend upon your own flesh when God has graciously saved his own by his mere love and his own action from the very beginning of time.